If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts, and we're going to be in Acts 9 today, verses 1 to 19, which is on page uh, 535 of the little, of the blue Bible in the chair in front of you. But uh, as we get there, there's a poem by a man named Francis Thompson that goes like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him in underrunning laughter. That's an excerpt from a poem that he wrote back in the 1800s called The Hound of Heaven. Francis had a very tragic life, however. It didn't seem that he truly understood what he was talking about in his poem. But even with this poem, he continued to strive after all sorts of things rather than the one he spoke of in this poem. So John Stott put it this way, Why I am a Christian is due ultimately neither to the influence of my parents, thank you, Lord, I'm a parent, teachers, nor to my own personal decision for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. That is, it is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly, even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for this gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. That's a pretty accurate description of God's conversion. See, the pursuit of Jesus is, in anyone's life is radical. It's a radical thing. And as we look at the life of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we will see a radical act of God. But let me ask, do you even know what the word radical means? You think back to the late 80s when everybody was calling everything radical. I know, I was thinking about that as all the TV shows. Sometimes we use this word and don't really know what it means, so I looked it up so that we all know what it means together. It means especially of change or action relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something. It is far-reaching and thorough. So when we use the word radical, like when they say radical wave, man, I have no idea what they actually mean. But when I look at the word, it means thorough, complete, utterly. To be a Christian is to have something radical happen. We see something radical in the things that we will see in this passage. In Acts 9, we're introduced once again to a man named Saul. And here's the game. How many times I'm going to accidentally say Paul? But the text says Saul. They're both the same person, okay? But I'm going to try and stick with Saul. And Saul was who we saw in Acts 6 was the one who looked on approvingly as the people stoned a godly man named Stephen. Now we will see how deep his hatred towards Jesus actually goes and how Jesus radically intervenes in his life. It's here we will see how far-reaching and thorough God's call is on one's life. And God's gospel doesn't only overcome ethnic or geographical locations like we've seen so far, but it will break through the hardest barrier possible, human sin. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be starting in verse 1 of chapter 9 on page 535. So the big numbers are the chapters. In chapter 9 it says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, so that if he found anyone that belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Then the the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, uh, a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, has, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by way you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately without, sorry, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Awesome God, we come to continue to worship you. This isn't a time for us to have our ears tickled, but to continue in our worship as we listen and as your word is preached. So Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, God, above all things for the glory of your name for the joy of your people and salvation of the lost. Amen. Verses 1 to 9, we see something simple. God's radical call on Saul. In verse 1, that small little word, but, the word of the Lord is continuing to increase. It has now spread to all sorts of places. It has broken ethnic and geographical locations. We saw that last week as we looked at the Ethiopian. But as the word of the Lord continued to increase, Saul's zeal against the church continued to increase. Still, Saul continues to do what he began to do in Acts 8, verse 3, when it says, 
but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So as he's doing this, he's breathing threats. He's strongly threatening disciples. I think of kind of the scene in an action movie, because I like action movies, where someone got captured and they start beating up on the person and threatening them at the same time with words. His words weren't just words, they had actions behind them. And he was breathing threats, but he was also involved in murder and the taking of life, intentionally killing people. This is the type of man that Saul was. And I think if there's anything that is a reminder, which I'll echo again later, when we look at God's radical call on Saul, there is no one outside of God's reach. So, what was he doing? Who was he doing this towards? He was doing this to disciples. And Jesus' words still continue to ring true. Matthew 24, verse 9 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Saul was threatening and murdering all sorts of people that came into contact, who were disciples, who were forgiven sinners, learning Christ and repentance and faith. That is what a disciple is. And he was active in seeking them out like a heat-seeking missile. Saul was active in murdering Stephen, and now he was continuing to persecute the church. Even in Acts 26, verses 10 to 11, it says, And I, Paul, at that time it's Paul, so I can use Paul, and I, Paul, did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, he says. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What a great testimony, he says of himself. He was dead set on destroying all of those who were, quote-unquote, following the way. So in verse 2, he goes to the high priest and asks for permission to go to all the other communities uh, that have, and to root up the heresy, or what he viewed as heresy, in those areas, the place called the way. And these were fellow disciples that had scattered from the initial persecution that happened out of Stephen. Right? And God was even using what man intended for evil for good as those Christians continued to spread and continued to tell other people about Jesus Christ, even in their hard circumstances. So he's going on his way to Damascus with the authority of the high priest to take back to Jerusalem anybody he finds. Why is it called the way? It was a term that early Christians, early followers of Jesus used to describe that Jesus is the way. That he is the way of salvation. Echoing John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Why? Except through me. So to be a Christian is this, is to be a follower of Jesus. To follow Jesus is to have a radical call. God calls on someone's life it's so radical that the person is no longer that same person anymore. And you see that even in this. They are so distinct. The disciples of Jesus are so distinct that they stand out. They're different than those who are around them. And, and Saul could see that. In Saul's persecution, he's not discriminating either. 
He's a person of equal opportunity. Man, woman, whoever. Whoever was following the way. And you think at this point, the disciples are saying probably to themselves, God, what are you going to do? God, do something. If you don't do something, this is all going to fall apart. But God will. Probably not the way that they thought, as it always seems to be. But he will do something in a radical way. And as Paul is walking towards Damascus with his letter in his hand, with his entourage of everyone who's going to come and help him, suddenly a light from heaven appears in verses 3 to 5 as, as, as Saul is on his way. And three times throughout this time, throughout, three times in God's word, Saul will bring up this event in his testimonies, which means it's important. Saul's repetition uh, of this right here shows the importance of this event. And this is Christ's calling of the apostle to the Gentiles. This is an important event even for just Christianity. The most important would be Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, and then three days later rising again. The next one would be this. We wouldn't have most of the Bible without God sovereignly working in Paul's life. So here we have Christ calling on the apostles, to the apostle to the Gentiles. And Saul hears a voice from heaven. And those who hear, hear something, but they don't really hear exactly what's happening. And you kind of picture it like in Peanuts, you know, the show Peanuts. Or it was a strip, comic strip first, but now it's a show. Uh, with the adults talking. They hear something's going on, but they don't know exactly what's happening. We see that in Acts 22 when, again, Paul rehashes what has happened as he says they did not understand the voice but jesus with intimacy calls out to saul he says saul saul why are you persecuting me and it's important to think that this isn't some sort of psychological break or something that's going on in his head he's not going crazy because other people hear it too and they see this light and they have to guide Saul to Damascus. But this is a conversion is still only known to Saul. So Saul asks a legitimate question, well, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replies something that broke Saul's thinking. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is mind-blowing to Saul. And in fact, we will see that he spends three days processing these things. And later, he'll even go for a further period of time thinking about these things. And the man he thought was an imposter. You've got to understand, Saul is on his way to Damascus to snuff out a heresy, a cult. He has no thought in his mind at all that Jesus is Lord and Savior that he is Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited promised Messiah. He didn't think that at all. He thought Jesus was a fake, an imposter, someone who blasphemed, who deserved to die on the cross, is now talking to him from heaven. That simple act. And when Jesus replies to Saul, what we see is that Jesus connects himself so closely with those who trust and follow him that to persecute his disciples is to persecute him. And this is a beautiful picture. 
And that's why Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? This is the present active indicative, meaning Jesus is talking about what is happening right now, not about what has happened or what will happen. This is what's happening to him right now. And this gives me encouragement, and I hope it gives you encouragement, knowing that Jesus knows my pain when I face persecution for his name. But it also breaks my heart. Because I was flashing back to passages like Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When it says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's terrifying to me. Then, not terrifying for me personally, but as I think of my friends and my family who don't know Jesus. Then they, and then he continues on, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And I know that whatever suffering I endure for this little while, I'm also reminded of 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 10, which says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Meaning that whatever we suffer for the name of Jesus Christ right now doesn't outweigh the eternal hope we have in him. But it also means that whatever those who are persecute us do to us for the witness we have borne of Jesus, and for those who don't repent of their sins, what God will do to them is far worse than whatever they can do to us. And that's what breaks my heart. Which is why we can pray for those who persecute us, understanding the hope that we have. We can pray for those who persecute us because we know what we have been saved from and what they face without Jesus is far worse than whatever could happen to us. You ever wonder why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you? Because it's far worse for them than you. Life that we have received, the eternal life that we've received through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection allows us to have hope in all circumstances. And because of that, we desire even those who hurt us for preaching the gospel, we pray that they may know Jesus Christ. And you know, this simple statement also shows us another beautiful thing called the union with Christ. 
See, John 15, 1 to 9, 19 talks about Jesus being the vine and how we need to abide in him. In Galatians 2, uh, 19 to 20, it talks about how we have been crucified with Christ. In Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, it talks about how you have been raised with Christ. In 1 John 4, 12, it talks about how God's love, as we abide, that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is all summed up in one doctrinal statement or one uh, teaching that is so beautiful called the union with Christ. And when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It points out a beautiful teaching because it means that for all of those who are in Christ, who are abiding in Christ, who have joined to Christ by grace through faith, suffer as Jesus did. It means that Jesus, is, Jesus identifies with his people as they suffer. Because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Which means, as I am being persecuted for Jesus' name, he gets it. He understands it. He feels it as I suffer. So I pray that this passage can strengthen us who are suffering because we love Jesus. But it also prods us on who aren't suffering to continue to pray for those who are. You know, on April 21st, we're having a young adult event hosted by David Platt called The Secret Church, which talks about this and how we can pray for the suffering church. But even those Saul was the, even though Saul was the means of suffering for Jesus' disciples, he would say in Colossians 1 verse 24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filled up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. See, Jesus' call was so radical on, on, on Saul's life that it, it changes from rejoicing in persecuting his disciples to rejoicing in the privilege of sharing in Jesus' suffering, much like the apostles did in Acts 5. So Saul hears Jesus' response, and you need to put yourself in Saul's shoes at this moment. He's hearing a voice from heaven the one who Stephen was proclaiming as, as, they were, as stones were being thrown at him, killing him, and Saul was looking on approvingly. Remember Stephen's words, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the one that Saul thought was an imposter and a blasphemer, say, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus is answering Saul as a Lord in heaven. So to be a Christian is to repent and believe. And we are to repent, which means to agree with God that we are sinners and renounce our sin and turn our backs on the old way of life and to believe but all our, and, and, and to put all of our confidence in the person of Jesus as our substitute whose death was enough to rescue us from hell that we deserved. That is what it means to make Jesus Lord, and Saul is beginning to see this. And Saul probably would have wanted any other answer, because now he hears those echoing words from one of his high priests, you might even be found opposing God. Notice that one of the first things in being converted is recognizing our desperate need to have a Savior. 
So in verses 6 to 8, God once again takes the initiative by intervening in the life of Saul, and Jesus tells him to go to the city and wait for the person who God will send. And he waits for three days, we see, without sight. He didn't eat, he didn't drink, he prayed. One commentary put it this way, Saul is blinded by the magnificence of his appearance of Christ, and his physical blindness allows him to see himself truly. He finally recognizes his own powerlessness and weakness and accepts his blindness and humility. Before commissioning Saul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, God tears down his reliance on his religious zeal. Only after being brought to this position of abject humility is Saul ready for the uplifting gospel of Jesus Christ. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we present the gospel, we can be guilty of doing one of two things. I was just talking with someone about this before the service. Overemphasizing that Jesus is all about love and not emphasizing anything about his wrath. Or sometimes we overemphasize his wrath and never talk about his love. It's both. The gospel is law and grace. But in order to understand the good news, we need to know the bad news. We have to know the bad news. But it's not just bad news. There's good news. So God radically works in the life of Saul, and Saul's conversion was as dramatic as his threats were violent, and he was at his very worst. And we may not have the same story of Saul. You know, most of us aren't murderers. I don't know. But we do have a story of God's radical work in our lives. The Bible says that we are all dead in our trespasses, that we are all dead in our sins. As Colossians 2 verse 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That is radical. God brings what was dead to life again. And he does that to Saul. And God does that in all who repent and believe. No matter, no longer is Saul dead, but made radically new. In verses 10 to 19, we see God radically makes Saul new. So, now we're, in, now we're introduced to a man named Ananias. It's not the same Ananias that was killed for lying. That person was buried. This is a new Ananias, who was actually described in Acts 22 as a devout man, a man who loved God and who was loved by those around him. And Saul is praying as he's processing how Jesus is not who he thought he was as an imposter. This imposter was just talking to him. Maybe what, what is he praying for? Praying to see Lord willing, God, I kind of would like to see. Praying for wisdom to know what just happened to him on that road to Damascus. Praying for forgiveness as he processes how he has been against God this whole time. Praying for a desire, a desire uh, something that we need to remember, a desire to pray is a sign of true conversion. 
and God heard these prayers, and the fact that God heard these prayers should be also an encouragement to us as well, that God who shows kindness to Saul is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why tonight at 4.30 we're coming together like we do every month to pray, because we have a God who hears. And as he, as Paul and Saul, or Saul, was praying, God has prepared him for Ananias to come, and he begins to process these things. See, verse 13 to 14, again, we're exposed to Saul's reputation. His reputation precedes him. You got to love that, eh? You love when you show up in a room and everyone thinks they already know you? In this case, it's all true. He is known for the evil he has done. And this is something that Paul describes himself as. Here he is, he thought Jesus was a blasphemer, but in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, he says, formerly I was a blasphemer, a prosecutor, and an insolent opponent. In this interaction with Ananias, that we also learn the lesson of obeying God, to loving our neighbor, and blessing those who curse us, and pray for those who persecute us. It's also a reminder for us older Christians those who maybe have been a Christian a little bit longer. I don't mean by age older, I mean by longevity of faith. How we need to embrace those who are new, no matter how badly they have behaved in the past. And God has forgiven their past sins. We should be willing to do the same. Not only that, God forgave your past sins, so you probably should do the same. And, no, no, let me take back the probably and be more emphatic. You should. No, you will. You, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> Saul was at his worst at this very moment, and he was overseeing uh, the murder of men and women who were disciples of G- Jesus, and he, he showed no signs of repentance until God intervened into his life. Remember, he was on his way to accomplish the task. He wasn't being repentant on the way. It wasn't until Jesus radically came into his life where Jesus radically meets him on the road to Damascus that things begin to change. So be to, be, to be radically new is to be thoroughly new. Here's a man who ha- would have arrested Ananias on sight. is now waiting patiently for him to come. Tim Keller puts it this way. Paul's conversion is a reminder that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. And how dare we ever think that anyone is. God insists, in verse 15 we see God insists that regardless of Ananias' concerns, that he should go. Why? Because God has chosen Saul. To do what? To be a chosen instrument of mine. God calls the enemy of the church his chosen instrument. And he will carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So maybe the prayers of the saints for God to do something about Saul, not exactly probably what they were thinking of. It wasn't for Ananias. But the very man who was seeking to stop the word of the Lord from increasing will be the very means God uses to increase the word of the Lord. It's a radical change that happens. What we are witnessing is how God will reach out to even his most hateful enemies.
God will be victorious over the darkest of human rebellion. And what we see with Saul is that he doesn't crush him, but loves him and gives him a new heart that enables him to believe. God converts him so that Saul and so many others will be used as instruments to not stop the good news from spreading, but to spread the good news further. So when we look at Saul, we see a man that for even Ananias seemed to be a loss because beyond hope. But God will reach all those who he has chosen to the outermost. And Saul was a rebel against God. He was an enemy of the long-promised Messiah. But God reconciles Saul through Jesus so that he becomes an ambassador of Jesus. Imploring, as he says in 2 Corinthians I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So just as Saul is a chosen instrument to bring good news, all those who are disciples of Jesus are also called to do the same. So in Christ, we are also God's chosen instruments to bring the message about Jesus. So we do that even now. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In your natural states, you are an enemy of him. You are sinful, and God is holy. In your sin, you have rebelled against a holy God, and you deserve one thing, and that is hell itself, which is eternal death. That's the law. But the grace, the good news is this, that Jesus paid the price for our sins, so that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, who repents of their sin, who acknowledge that you are wrong and believe by resting in Jesus' sacrifice being sufficient to pay the price for your sins will be saved. When God converts, it's a radical thing. It's thorough. It's complete. You're not like God doesn't convert you and say, hey, now sit on the fence. He says, I'm going to take you from here I'm going to put you over here. You're different. It's a transfer from a kingdom of darkness to Jesus' kingdom of light. And as we walk through Acts, we will see from chapter 13 all the way to 28 that Paul proclaims Jesus as Christ to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel, eventually being killed for it. By Jesus radically calling Paul, we see four things that are happening, and it's amazing. Four things happening at the exact same time. We see justification, we see regeneration, and adoption, and conversion, all happening at the same time as we're reading this. And it's beautiful. I love it. Because only God could do it. In justification, Saul experiences an instantaneous legal act of God when he declares that Saul's sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is his. The very one he was rejecting pays for him. In regeneration, God secretly and sovereignly gives a new heart to Saul that enables him to believe in who God is. He's adopted which means God welcomes Saul, the enemy of God, the, like the poster boy of enemy of God, to become a member of his family and fellowship. And God calls the enemy of the church to be his friends. 
And when God converts Saul, Saul willingly responds to the gospel call of repenting of our sins and places his faith in Jesus for salvation. And these four things are all happening as God radically calls Saul and how Jesus radically intervened in Saul's life. And this isn't just a change in Saul's calling or his job description. This is a complete reversal in his whole outlook on his standing before God. In Christ, this is something that God has done in all of our lives for all those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So God so radically changes Saul's life that he turns the greatest persecutor of the church to one of the greatest instruments declaring God's glory. Church, we need to believe that God makes people radically new. Not just nice. There's a great little yellow book called Conversion, which walks through this doctrine of conversion in a biblical way, what the Bible says about how God saves people. But in verse 16, we see Jesus' radical call to be a chosen instrument, and Jesus will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, he says. And Saul brought suffering to those who trusted in Jesus, but he will now receive persecution as one who will proclaim the message about Jesus. And this will happen almost immediately once he gets some food into his stomach. Suffering can look different for anyone, but let me be clear on this, because I grew up in a culture where I went to youth retreats and all these things, where it's come to Jesus and your life's going to be great. There's an aspect that your life is great, because you have a hope that can never be taken away. But obeying Jesus isn't simple. It's not even easy. By choosing to obey Jesus puts us at odds with the world. So like the apostles, we should embrace it as a badge of honor every time someone even mocks you. In our culture, we get mocked. We don't, really, we don't get persecuted. But even to be persecuted, we should wear it as a badge of honor and a privilege. Why? Because to suffer for Jesus' name means that I have been identified with Christ. That reminds us of our hope and our temporariness of our current circumstances. So in verse 17, and Ananias comes, he lays his hands on Saul, which is this amazing physical symbol of the invisible power of the Holy Spirit coming to heal Saul from his blindness and to dwell within him in new life. And as Saul was healed, it showed not only the healing power of the kingdom of God, but also symbolized his transformation from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. Saul was a new creation. And like scales falling off, the unbelief that covered Saul's heart are now falling, are falling, enabling him to believe. It is the same for us. When we believe, our spiritual blindness is healed and we can see and we begin to see how bad our sin truly is and how good our God truly is. It is as, it is as if our eyes had been covered in scales, but no longer. And Ananias says this really cool thing. He says, Jesus who appeared to you. 
which is, we can quickly go over this, but that means that, G, that Saul didn't see a dream or a vision. He actually saw Jesus, which is important when it comes to his apostleship. Then notice in verse 18 to 19, something that I wouldn't do before he even goes and eats, he goes and gets baptized. <laughs> I can barely make it to the next meal. But you see the priorities here. Paul is putting a huge emphasis on the importance of baptism. Baptism is faith going public. It's publicly aligning yourself with Jesus. And he's publicly aligning himself with the one that he was literally three days before that walking to try and snuff out. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, baptism is your next step. I would encourage you to do that sooner rather than later. And talk to me about it, because we love talking about these things. So Saul is no longer an enemy of Jesus. Now Saul is Jesus's. Baptism is also a symbol of the old being gone and the new coming. And this is a radical change that only God can do. No longer is Saul a blasphemy or persecutor or an insolent opponent. Now he is, as verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1 says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus, he is Jesus' chosen instrument. And I like how J.M. Hamilton puts it, Saul is immediately baptized after he is physically restored. Faith in Jesus is not described, but is implicit in the narrative. And when we look at conversion here and in other places in Acts, the reception of the Spirit is implied. So when something that is received at conversion, but also belief and baptism are tied together, and that's because baptism is your faith going public. So this is an amazing reminder of the radical call on Saul. If you are in Christ, don't read this and diminish God's call on your life. Right? Sometimes we get the person who has the best testimony to share their testimony. Right? Wow, look at that. That is the coolest testimony in the world. We've got to make sure we share that more. Look at my testimony is incredibly boring. And I praise God for that. But I've also been saved from the same pits of hell that even the greatest testimony has been saved from. It doesn't matter if you were a murderer or stole a cookie. Sin is sin. And someone said to me once, or I was on Twitter this morning, don't ever do that. <laughs> and someone was saying, there's, you know, sin is, sin is sin is one of the most unthought statements. I'm like, sure. Same with like every other statement we say. But here's the thing. I'm not going to bring the murder down to the stolen cookie level. It's the cookie being stolen that's being brought up to the murder level. When we understand the holiness of God, regardless of whatever sin that you did, it is against a holy God. And you deserve one thing, and that is hell. 
But praise be to God who sends his son Jesus Christ who died for our sins so whether you stole a cookie or you murdered someone, we can both boldly approach the throne of grace through Jesus Christ who is our Lord and Savior. We were all dead in our trespasses, which means you can't save yourself. So yes, are there worse sins than others? Sure. But regardless if, you've, if you killed someone or stole a cookie, God is holy. You may not have gone, gone around doing those things, but Jesus paid the price for that sin and he brings a newness, just like we see in Saul. Maybe you're a habitual stealer of cookies. God even changes that. So kids, you start asking your parents. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, conversion is a turning into the right road. The next thing is to walk in it. The daily going on on the road is essential as the first starting if you would reach the desired end. To strike the first blow is not all the battle. To him that overcomes, the crown is promised. To start in the race is nothing. Many have done that who have failed. But to hold out till you reach the winning post is the great point of the matter. Perseverance is a necessary to a man's salvation as conversion. When one is converted, there is a change in your life. And you can be guilty of making nice people, but God creates new people. And that's what God does. So conversion begins at the heart and radiates outwards to affect everything we think, we say, or do. You can't just say that conversion happened. That doesn't make it real. That's, what, that's not what Saul experienced. When real conversion happens, there's a switch in the direction in that person's life. There's a change of allegiances and a movement from self-worship to God-worship. God radically changed Paul from the, per- the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest tool of furthering God's word. Remember that poem. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Saul may have been running from God, even though he thought he was running with him, but God had another plan. So the so what? God radically changes the one he calls so that the person is a new person, not just a nice person. There's a lot of people who probably thought Saul was a mean guy. He was a new person, though. In Acts 9, we are introduced once again to Saul, but a different man. And when we see than what we saw in Acts 6, he's completely different. God radically intervenes in his life, it's here we will see how far-reaching and thorough God's call is on his life. And God's gospel does not only overcome an ethnic or geographical barrier, but will break through something worse, which is human sin. To have something radical happen, especially of, of, of a change of, or action, this is a fundamental change of nature that is happening. 
So this passage tells us a few things. That to be a disciple of Jesus is to have something radical happen. Here we see the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, pursue Saul and us relentlessly. This passage tells us of the radical change is a thorough change that is followed with a different life, with a different desire than the old one. This passage is a reminder that no one is beyond the reach of Christ. So this calls us to simply be faithful witnesses of the message about Jesus, to pray for those who we love, that God would radically intervene in their lives. This passage tells us that in Christ, we have been united with him. To be a Christian is to have something radical happen. And we see radical things happen in this passage. God radically changes the one he calls so that the person is a new person, not just a nice person. Let's pray. Lord, by your spirit, you make us you make all those who truly repent and believe new. Help us to live in lights of that, to grow to be more like you, so that our witness would even continue to grow. And as we become more like you, we will be more different than those around us. So when things get hard, remind us of the hope that we have in you. Help us to continue to pray for those who persecute us, knowing that no one is beyond your reach. Help us to be faithful witnesses knowing that it is you who calls. Amen.